Our reading this morning is from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 23, beginning in verse uh, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Amen. You may now be seated. Um, if you uh, haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we are looking at the last hours of Jesus' life. Um, and in particular, we're taking a look at the phrases uh, that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross during the last hours of his life. Um, and this is kind of a mini-series within a larger series where we've been looking at the book of Luke. We've been specifically focusing on the uh, passages and the stories, the parables, and different things that are in Luke that aren't in any of the other Gospels. Um, just taking a look at what it is that Luke provides for us in his perspective uh, of the life of Christ, his ministry, and of course his death and, and uh, resurrection. Um, and so as we do this, we're seeing again and again um, that Luke liked to focus on um, the people that everybody thinks should have been not included in the whole story, the, the, the folks that were kind of beyond the reach of, of religion or maybe should have been left to the side. Um, but we see repeatedly that Jesus pursued after those people, uh, that he told stories to kind of ruffle feathers to help people understand that the gospel was good news for the least and the lost and the furthest away, um, for the Gentile and the Samaritan and women and children, um, sinners and even criminals like we saw last week, uh, one of the guys hanging next to Jesus um, being invited to Christ's side after death which is um, just unbelievable when you think about it. So uh, in the midst of these um, sayings, we have what we just read here today, um, which is Christ calling out to his father um, just before he died. And so um, this is our last little saying. And then conveniently, we're going to turn the page uh, on Easter next week, um, and we're going to look at some of the first things Jesus said after he rose. So we're catching the last things Jesus said as he's dying, and then we'll catch some of the first things that Jesus says um, after he rose. In particular, uh, we're going to look at a conversation on the road to Emmaus in uh, Luke chapter 24. So if you're coming back to join us for Easter next week, um, you can cheat and read that ahead of time and uh, come and preach the sermon instead of me, because that'll be fun. Um, so let, let's read that again, and then, uh, not that again, let's read what we just read again, and then uh, we're going to jump in here. Um, and this passage is, is just chock full of stuff, so we're going we're gonna to have to get going here. So here we go. Luke 23, starting in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last now, when the centurion uh, saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. All right, let's pray. Father, 
we thank you for um, this beautiful opportunity to, to come as your people and to gather together under your word. Um, we are um, aware of and, and we recognize that uh, we as fallen human beings are, are prone. Um, we're prone to wander and we're prone to, to miss um, you. Uh, we're prone to forget the gospel. We're, we're prone to look to the self um, and uh, believe today in this passage we'll see uh, just the, the, the kind of the, the subtle destruction of, of those things of forgetting you and of looking to the self and, um, and so I pray that you'd reorient our lives like you have to pretty much every single day um, and especially we come here on this day the Lord's day to be reoriented um, just like Kelly read a prayer earlier, to be reoriented to the, the better truths, the, the fuller truths, the, the real and true truths, um, those truths that are given to us by you from your word, trustworthy over centuries because we know they are sure um, and we know that you are faithful and we know that the giver of these truths is himself true. Uh, you are true. You are life. You are light and you are our way. Um, and so please set our hearts on these truths today. Um, reorient us in whatever ways we need. God, would you um, give us the opportunity to um, repent not only of sin, but also repent of our self-righteousness, repent of our good deeds even, uh, because often we think our good deeds are the things that are earning us the favor with you. Uh, but the gospel turns us away from all of this. So um, please, in your kindness, turn us away um, from what is false and turn us to what is true. Um, and God, I don't stand here as the beacon of truth, and so we, we beg for help that you, by your spirit, um, would overpower the flesh of a weak man and that you would bring your truth to bear on your people because it is your name uh, that is on the line. And, uh, and so, uh, for your sake, uh, for your glory, uh, for the honor of the true king, um, would you, God, open our hearts, uh, open my mouth open our eyes just to see uh, the glorious truth of Christ today. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Amen. So um, Luke 23, this, this, this entire narrative, and, and I, I have done it the last couple weeks, just tried to sit and just, and just read the significance of, of all of the events that are going on. Last week I read uh, from the Psalms, which, which uh, were... Um, kind of foretelling and, 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 and showing so much of what Jesus was going through in these moments. Uh, again, this morning we saw in Psalm 31 that we read for our call to worship, there was a, another moment where the, the psalmist from thousands of years ago point to this moment, and Jesus from this moment points back to the psalms, just showing uh, the interconnectivity of all of this stuff. And so there are just, just sentence after sentence after sentence in this narrative, uh, just colossal things that are taking place. Um, and we've kind of wanted to dedicate these last few weeks to looking at the words of Jesus, but, but I can't just, uh, just simply blow by some of what's going on ahead of that. So I want to touch quickly on verse 44 and 45, um, and then also verse 47 uh, to 49 before we kind of finish by honing in on verse 46. Um, and so 44 and 45, it says, Now the sixth hour 
Uh, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And so uh, if you're a, a Jew in this, in this day and age, you didn't have a clock, you had a sundial. Um, and so you began counting the days when the sun started casting a shadow. So the sixth hour, um, this was actually uh, noon. And uh, the ninth hour there is actually three o'clock. And so there's, there's a, a, a very intense reality to this darkness because it falls at the time that it should be the brightest, right? I mean, coming up here in a few months, what are the three hours that you're going to avoid every single freaking day because you'll melt if you're out there, right, from noon to three, right? That's just going to be our life for a few months. Um, if you're a true Floridian and you enjoy those things, the Lord bless you, um, but I'm still getting used to it. Um, six years now and I'm still... Oy. So this is the brightest, the hottest, the most intense light that the day has, and what happens? The light goes away, right? And this isn't just some solar eclipse. This isn't a natural event that just happens to take place at the same time that Jesus happens to be on the cross. And we can get into the nitty-gritty, but I'm not going to do that right now. We know that it's Passover. Uh, we know what time of the month this is. We know when the moon is full, and we know this isn't a solar eclipse. So um, this is a supernatural moment. Uh, it's like the darkness that fell on Egypt. Remember when there was frogs and then gnats and then blood in the river and all these different things. One of the, one of the days was darkness, um, and that was a supernatural darkness, not unlike this darkness. There was no explanation for it. Uh, it just simply happened. The, the, the light of the sun failed at this moment. And often in the scriptures, this darkness is talked about kind of in light of like end-of-the-world type of events. Um, often in the Old Testament, darkness represents lament or deep sorrow. Uh, and it also, like in Exodus, it, it reflects divine judgment. And so we have at this moment a significant uh, occurrence where this supernatural uh, darkness falls on the land, and it seems like God's judgment is coming, right? It seems like this is a moment to be feared by everybody. I mean, can you imagine, there's significant crowds watching this all happen, there's, there's Roman guards involved, you know, all of these people have been uh, a part of this, this situation, and suddenly it goes dark on them all. I mean, if, if I'm there, I'm trembling, right? I'm, I'm cowering and hiding myself behind trees or in caves or in something. Um, and Mike McKinley says this, it's just it's spectacular to think through this. He says, when the darkness lifted, we might well have expected that God's judgment would have fallen on the crowd who was killing his son. That might be our expectation. You killed my son, I'm going to get you. Here comes the darkness and here comes the death, right? No, but instead, when the light returns, the only person who'd experienced the wrath of God was the light of the world. He was the one that was plunged into the deep spiritual darkness. And so this darkness coming upon the whole world while Jesus was on the cross was this same supernatural darkness that signified sorrow and death and the judgment of God. And where did it fall? It, it fell on Jesus. It fell on the one who was pure and clean and the one who was truly light and the one who was truly good and the one who was truly innocent. The darkness fell, and when the darkness lifted, the only one that was dead was Christ. The judgment of God falls on Jesus in this moment. And Tim Keller says it beautifully. He says, because of Jesus' death, evil is a passing thing. It's a shadow. There is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach because evil fell into the heart of Jesus. The only darkness that could have destroyed us forever 
fell into his heart. And so this darkness that should have terrified the crowd, it passes by, and what did it do? It ended Jesus, right? This great darkness that was a, a beacon of the judgment of God, it fell on Christ. And the time of this darkness was not insignificant either. Josephus, the Jewish um, historian, actually says that the ninth hour was the time when the Jews offered the daily evening sacrifice. And so at the end of the darkness would have been the time when the, the priests would have been offering a sacrifice in the temple. And the same time, what happens? A curtain is torn in the temple from top to bottom, severing the separation that existed between the most holy place and the holy place. It was the place where the priests could only enter one time a year to make one sacrifice of atonement on Yom Kippur, the, the one sacrifice that was a washing away of all sins. Suddenly, the temple curtain that separated the priests from going into that place is gone. The separation between God and man is gone at the very time that the last sacrifice of the day was supposed to happen, right? Very clearly, God is screaming, there's no more sacrifice. The final sacrifice has been made. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is slain. The darkness comes to show that finally and ultimately the judgment of God is thrown on the shoulders of Jesus, and so now there's no longer any need for sacrifice. And Hebrews dives into that beautifully. If you ever want to just read about sacrifice and how Jesus is attached to the priesthood and all that stuff, Hebrews just tells us he was the great high priest. He was the great and ultimate sacrifice. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so these are huge, huge things that are happening. We could spend an entire sermon on just one of both of those things, um, but we're, we're intentionally getting to these words, and so I wanted to mention these things because of what is happening. And then look at the crowd around Jesus and their response after this takes place. So looking into verse 47 now. It says, now when the centurion saw uh, what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, I don't know about you, but for some strange reason I have, um, I, I always think of the centurion in this story as like a really upright, cool guy. Um, and I don't know what it is. I guess it's just like boyhood growing up and thinking that like warriors are kind of bad dudes and I want to be like them or what it is. But I mean, like this guy was willfully, possibly gladly, um, possibly mockingly joining in the murder of an innocent human being. Okay. So while he's not a criminal necessarily deserving of death next to Jesus on the cross, he's still not a nice guy, right? This dude's got blood on his hands right now at this moment. Sure, it's under the command of an evil emperor, but he's still taking part in killing Jesus. And not just killing Jesus, but hundreds of people before that. Right? This wasn't the first day that people were put on a Roman cross. This was a, a death instrument that had been well-practiced by people like this, fine-tuned to create the most suffering possible. Right? So this guy is very accustomed to, to, to death and suffering and pain, um, to listening to and ignoring the cries of suffering human beings. So, I mean, talk about a calloused heart, right? I mean, he didn't just watch The Departed or something like that. The guy is The Departed. I mean, he is just black, right? Calloused, hard. He laughs at 
Okay? In, in some of the other accounts, some of the soldiers are, are gambling for Jesus' clothes. Right? They made a game out of the death of our Savior. These are not just good dudes. They're really dark guys. Some of it, the darkness has been thrust upon them, but like many of us, the darkness has been embraced as well. And in this moment, he sees what has taken place. And he praises God, Luke says, and declares, surely this man was innocent. In Mark, we see the words that says, surely this man was the son of God, actually, is the declaration that Mark records. So this black-hearted, calloused, blood-on-his-hands soldier melts at this darkness. He melts at hearing Jesus offer a criminal paradise. He melts at hearing, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Right? This external, I'm tough, which has an internal callousness to it, suddenly is melted, and he sees Christ's behavior to his enemies. He hears these words. He witnesses this supernatural darkness, and he declares this man was innocent. He recognizes that Jesus was pure. He recognizes the real power in this moment is not the Roman army. It's the one willingly offering his life on a cross. That's the real power. He likens him to a son of God. He doesn't theologically, I think, grasp everything that's going on, but he realizes this guy didn't deserve it. This guy didn't deserve it, and no one ever in my entire experience of crucifixion has ever died like this guy. I've never seen anything like it, this Roman centurion says. Again, Tim Keller says, if you see Jesus losing the infinite love of his Father out of his infinite love for you, it will melt your hardness. Jesus Christ's darkness can dispel and destroy our own so that in the place of hardness and darkness and death, we have tenderness and light and life. This is, I think, what hit the centurion, and it's also what's there to hit us, that in the place of our darkness, Jesus takes it to give us his light. And if you observe just looking, gazing on the great love that caused him to endure that, to willingly let these things happen to him. If you realize what's truly going on, that Jesus is trading places with you. It's the only way your heart will be soft to receive the true gospel message. If you understand and grasp the fact that Christ willingly suffered as an innocent soul on behalf of every single one of us. So similar to that thief on the cross like we talked about last week, this man expresses faith in Jesus. We also see here that there's a crowd, maybe the same crowd that said crucify him, maybe some of the same people, maybe all the same people, I don't know. Maybe some of the same people that on Palm Sunday, which welcome to Palm Sunday, yay, it's Palm Sunday. Maybe those ones who cried Hosanna, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe some enemies, maybe some friends. We also see that there's the, the others who had journeyed from Galilee, Luke says specifically that the women were there watching this. And many of the people return home beating their breasts, right? It's just a kind of a symbolism of sorrow, right? Of, of almost, almost a recognition of, of maybe some repentance that's actually happening in people. That they recognize whether they were willing participants or just um, 
just kind of fading into the crowd and not having anything to do with it or didn't speak up wherever they find themselves. They know on some level they're responsible for what just happened and it should not have happened. This man did not deserve death, the recognition of this entire crowd. And I do love the fact that Luke points out that these women who had followed Jesus from Galilee, they stood watching as well. Luke highlights them again and again, as, as we'll talk about next week on Resurrection Sunday. They're the first ones to preach the resurrection of Jesus, the women were. It's pretty cool to see that. They saw the tomb and went and told the disciples, the Son of God is alive. And so these are some of the significant things happening in this passage. But like I said, I want to focus in on verse 46. And so let's read that again. It says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So now two of the three sayings that we've concentrated on here in Luke, um, the, the ones that are unique to Luke's gospel, two of the three sayings are prayers from Jesus to the Father, okay? So the lion's share of Jesus' final words are prayers to the Father. His response to all of this evil is to call on his Father. His response to the wicked just surrounding him and, and threatening him and his life being in danger is to go to the Father, right in the middle of the very worst hours of not only Jesus' life, but of any person's life ever in the history of the world, he is aware that his Father is present, that his Father is listening, that he can call on his Father. He still knows in the middle of all this that the Father is good. And though he's surrounded by the unknown, I mean, I, I, I kind of tried to get into the mind of Jesus here, and just there's darkness, there's, there's shadow, there's... there's you know, mocking, all these different things that are happening all around him. And they're all things that have been foretold in the scriptures. And yet Jesus is here not fully um, contributing to all these things. They're happening all around him. It's God the Father doing this stuff. Jesus didn't say, son, go dark, right? The Father is actually making all these things come to fruition. It's just this deep trust in the soul of Jesus to say, whatever is supposed to be happening right now is happening. Even though my hands are tied, I mean, more than literally, my hands are tied, everything around me that's happening is happening according to a plan, according to the knowledge of the one who holds the entire world in his hands. And so he's surrounded by all these unknown things, these things that he's not in control of. He doesn't get down off of the cross. He sits there and endures. And yet with his final words, we see that Jesus is putting his trust in the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus trusts the utter unknown, right? Life beyond death. He trusts that into the hands of his Father. Trusting what should be happening here is going to happen and what will happen in the future is in your hands, God. I trust you right here and right now. And I want to look at this not in a way where we say, you, dear follower of Jesus, need to look at Jesus in this moment and start trusting God like Jesus trusted the Father. Okay? So get with it and trust God better. Okay? That, that's, that's not where I want to go this morning. Instead, I want to concentrate on the fact that Jesus 
trusted the Father perfectly in the worst situation to ever befall a man, and he did that for you. Jesus trusted for you. Jesus had perfect faith for you. That's what I want to look at, the fact that when you struggle to trust God, you won't be let go by his hands of grace because Jesus passed the test of trust. Jesus passed the ultimate test of faith. And so I'm not here to say, hey, come on now, pass your test of faith. I'm here to say when you stumble like me your way through this test of faith, trust that Jesus had perfect faith for you. He had perfect faith for you. He's not standing by, anxiously biting his nails, watching you go through your test of faith and thinking, oh, come on, kid, come on, kid, come on, kid, get it right, get it right, you can do it, you can do it, come on, kid. I mean, he's praying for you, but he's not freaking out. Why? Because you staying in the hands of the Father is not up to you getting this test right. You staying in the hands of the Father is up to the fact that Jesus has already gotten the test right, and he's guaranteed, he's settled it with his blood. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. He's standing by, really, really, really close by, <laughs> with his perfect record of trust, with his spotless performance before the Father, and he is holding that up instead of drawing attention to your failure to trust God in whatever test you're in. That's where Jesus is. Not saying, come on, kid, get it right, but saying, listen, no matter what, the, past, the test has been passed the perfect record is available, and by faith, that perfect record is yours. This is the life of faith. It's not Jesus saying, you've got to perfectly trust me. Rather, it's Jesus saying, trust my perfection. I've got you. Richard Sibes, a Puritan, says it very plainly. A weak hand may receive a rich jewel. A weak hand may receive a rich jewel. An imperfect attempt at trusting God, an open hand trying but failing to grasp what faith is, what this life is really about, just struggling through it, that kind of hand can receive the perfect jewel, the perfect gift of Christ's perfect life on your imperfect behalf. This is Christ on the cross for us. He passed the greatest test of faith so that when we struggle through ours, we know we're still in his hands, right? We know we're still in his hands. One time, Rachel and I took a cog railway ride to the top of Pikes Peak. Anybody been to Pikes Peak? No, one, two. Figured, yeah, you guys, we talked about it. The average uphill grade of this train ride was 12%. Um, the thing goes all the way to the top of a 14,115-foot mountain. Uh, often, this train rides right on the edge of the mountain wall, um, and at times it hits an uh, incline of 24%. Um, and there was times we rode this train, and it seemed like it was a normal train ride. And it was like through the woods. And it was like deer. And it was like a Disney movie. It's like, get it. But then there were other times where we were like out on the edge, 
above the tree line, exposed, you know, looking down and death right over there, you know, and then climbing up at the 24% grade. We slowed down sometimes, like downshift, I think, and then like, you know, jerk back in. And I mean, there was times where I'm like, I don't think we're going to make it, right? Like, sometimes I'm cool and smooth and, yeah, man, this is great. And other times I'm just like, I don't bite nails. My wife does that. So she was doing it for both of us. Like, are we going to do this? Are we going to make this? And the whole time, the whole time, the train, the train just kept going. The whole time. It never faltered. Not once. And it wasn't because I believed that we could make it. It was because there was a conductor who knew that we could make it. Because he had taken many passengers, people probably even more fearful than me, all the way to the top and back with no problem whatsoever. He didn't need me to believe we could make it. He believed we could make it. And he took me. It wasn't me passing a trust test that got us to the top. It was the conductor that did that. There was no way on earth that he was going to let me go because I was his responsibility. And so even if I had weak faith, I had placed it in the right thing. And so trust isn't mustering up enough within yourself to get you through a tough situation. Trust is falling upon something more reliable, something more stable, something more secure, something more established, something more firm than you have ever been or ever will be. And so I think sometimes we might look at great faith in the scriptures, which, I mean, if greater faith is on display anywhere else, I do not know. Jesus trusting his life into the hands of the Father at this moment. Sometimes we can take these moments and turn them in on ourselves and say, I have to do better. And so today, I just want to make it so clear that we don't take this time to only look at Jesus as an example. But that's not the primary focus of the gospel, to look at Jesus as an example. Certainly he is an example. One we'll never reach, but ought always look at. But that isn't the great grasp of hope that we get on, that we get a hold of. Rather, we take a look at the cross and we say, Jesus here is not simply an example, but he is a substitute. He is a substitute, the one who is perfectly trusting in this place on my behalf because I am going to struggle sometimes to have perfect faith. And so if you're prone to see Jesus as only an example, you might start to find yourself piling an impossible load upon yourself, maybe even piling an an impossible weight upon other people. That's not the beauty of the gospel that can often actually quickly become a a crushing weight of religion that says, trust self, actually. And it turns from trusting God into trusting self. And when we do that, it either turns us bitter because things don't turn out right, or we can embitter others around us because we pour that weight on them. We condemn them for their lack of perfect trust. And so if your life of faith is looking through the scriptures for examples to be perfect-like, I want to help you turn the page. I want to help you move your Christian faith onto something far more glorious, something far more rich, something far more deep, something far more life-giving. Rather than just simply finding an example to put more pressure on yourself, somebody else you've got to be like, 
I've got to be like Moses in this situation. I've got to be like Abraham in this situation. I've got to be like David in this situation and Saul in this situation and, 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 and Jesus in this situation. Rather, move us to a place where we peacefully gaze into the perfect word of God and we look for all the ways that God has been faithful to those who've struggled through the life of faith. To find again and again the places where people have failed but their God has not left them. To find again and again imperfect examples so that we can identify with the fact that God has included them in, in his story. And so he's also including us in his story. Not because we've gotten it right. Not because we've found the right example and have nailed that game. But because we've looked again and again at the perfect and faithful God who's come through for everyone. And also in this journey to find again and again giant arrows in the scriptures pointing us towards the perfect Christ who did all that he could do so that the curtain would tear, so that the separation between God and us would end. To look at the, the perfect Christ who endured the darkness in our place, to look at the perfect Christ who cried out as a forsaken soul as he placed his faith in his Father. And he passed the ultimate trust test alone and exposed. When you find this Christ, when you find this faithful one, when you find this enduring one, then you'll find that your acceptance is not based on your merit, but it's based on the merit of one who's perfectly performed for you. So listen, this isn't me saying, or this isn't not saying, I know it's dark sometimes and you should trust God. Yeah, true. It is dark sometimes. And yes, you should trust God. Right? I know it hurts sometimes, and even then you should trust me. Yeah, still saying that. Absolutely we should say that. Right? I think the deepest hope of the gospel, though, is that when you don't get that trust right, right, when your anxiety spikes, and it's literally the opposite of trust, at that moment, there is not a begrudging father looking at you with discontent on his face. Rather, it is a pleased father looking at you through the performance of Jesus, seeing perfection. When you struggle to trust him, you're his. When you bail on doing the right thing under pressure, Turn back, because he's still right there. Go turn back to the perfect performance of Jesus. It was for you when you failed to trust him. That is the glorious truth of the gospel. And this is why we can be exhorted to trust God. Not because it's up to you, but because it was up to him, and now you can be free to move into actual trust. Because trying to get it perfect is really just trust in yourself. But recognizing that he's got you when you're not perfect, that's trust in him. When I am weak, right? Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. I'm the little one. You're the little one. When we are weak, he is strong. When we stumble and we fail, and we say, man, Jesus, I didn't get it right like you got it right. Jesus says, I know that's why I went to the cross and got it right for you. Now rest, dear child, in the arms of your father who cares for you. 
This is exactly why we can be exhorted to have faith. Like Peter did in 1 Peter 4.19, he said, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Why can you do that? You can do that because the pressure's off. You can stumble your way through trusting God while suffering because the pressure's off. Because it's not all up to you to get it right. That's why you can actually joyfully move into pursuing real trust in God. Because if I happen to misstep along the way and start to slide down the cliff face of that scary mountain, it's not up to me. He's holding me even in these struggling moments. The basis for this trust is the faithfulness of God. Just like the basis for my trust, my weak trust in that train ride, in the man who'd done it time and time again, who knew the route, had been to the top and been back down and probably faced some trouble on the way. I could trust that. I could rest there. I could sit back and enjoy the view because it did not depend on me. It depended on him. Same too in your journey of faith. It does not depend wholly on you. It depends wholly on Jesus. And he, to his very last word, right up until his dying breath, he trusted the Father for you. And we opened this day with a call to worship from the beginning of Psalm 31. In there, we heard the same words that Jesus cried here. He was, he was reciting scripture. He was praying scripture as he was on the cross. Um, we read those words, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was a psalm, and then it was the words of Jesus, as Jesus perfectly trusted the Father for us. I want to finish today by reading the last part of that same psalm. So if you've got a Bible app or you've got your Bible with you, with you turn with me to Psalm 31. I want to read verses 14 to 24 and just watch this thing close us out. It says this, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of man. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So yes, may your trust be in God. Right? When it's dark, and seem, things seem hard to understand, may you trust him then. And even in the pain when it seems like he's far away, may you trust him then. But even more so, may you know deep in your soul that when it's hard to trust, when you're saying more than 
uh, here's my faith, Father. May, when you're saying, help my unbelief, when those are the cries of your heart, may you know then that Jesus trusted perfectly, and because he did that for you, you can rest assured that he's got you in the palm of his hands. Because he's got you when you failed to trust him, that's why you can trust him. Because he's perfectly got you. Amen? Let's trust him together. Let's pray. This Father, this morning we, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That we, though flawed in our attempts to have faith, are taken up in your arms because of Christ's perfect faith. Because he alone endured suffering perfectly. Because he alone faced darkness and did not sin. Because he alone endured pain and did not collapse. Because he alone dealt with evil, stood there in the face of evil, and did not retaliate with evil, but rather surrendered in love. Because of this, we know that as we fumble in the dark, as we struggle our way through some of these tests in our life, as we even struggle in the times that are easy, God, we know that you've got us. You've got us because you hold on to us closely based on the work of your son, based on the perfect performance of Jesus. Because he did the work, we can rest in your arms. Because he, in that darkness, absorbed the wrath. Because he felt the abandonment of God turning his face away. We know that the promise of I'll be with you till the end is ours. And it's secured in the work of Jesus. And so God, we do. We, we trust you. We trust you as we stumble through this trust test, this life of faith. We trust that when we can't quite get it right, that you've gotten it right for us, that you're holding us, and that is precious, and that is powerful, and that is real love. Thank you, God. For Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the one who endured for us, the one who faced it for us. Now we have perfect fellowship with you because of him. We love you and we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.